<laughs> well, thank you very much, Roger, for uh, the generous introduction and uh, to the whole, all of the folks who were involved in uh, inviting me back. It's a great pleasure to be back here. It's especially nice to see um, Arthur, my um, old mentor, and glad that he happened to be in town when, when I was coming through so we could catch up. And, and Roger, who I know since he was a JRF, I know the number of people I talked to said they can't believe he was ever such a thing. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I appreciate the chance to see everybody and other other familiar faces around the around the room. So um, my my talk today, as as you might know, if you if you looked at my 2005 book, Race for the Exits, um, is an extension of that earlier project. Um, the Declining fertility as a subject, as something some people have been talking about, has been going on at least since 1990. So I think many people date that as the beginning of uh, Japan starting to realize that they have a declining fertility problem. And so the book looked at the first 15 years of the response to declining fertility, or shoshika mondai. And, um, it's hard to believe, but almost another decade has passed since I, I left off the story in that book. And your invitation to come speak here was a great opportunity to, to, to look back at now 25 years of Japan's uh, policy making, thinking about discourse about its declining fertility problem. So um, that's kind of the, the framework in which I, I took up your challenge. And um, it, one thing I'm trying to do is, is update the story. I'll ask a couple of questions in particular. What new patterns have characterized the latest stage of the public discussion on this issue? Have Japanese policymakers determined the cause of the malady? Have they figured out a policy cure? Um, have their efforts to tweak public policy to boost fertility yield, yielded any success? So they've been talking about it this long. I think you could, you could identify some of the first responses to policy responses to declining fertility going on as early as 1992 when the parental leave system was first introduced. Initially, it was unpaid. Um, then they had the angel plans with um, investment in, in expanding child care services. That was in the mid-90s. And there's kind of been a steady drumbeat of policy innovations along these lines that I will talk about. Um, but what I'm particularly interested in is framing this uh, look back at Japan's policy response um, as a um, example of social scientists trying to make policy in an area of uh, where there's a lot of uncertainty. And one, if you've read my book, you know that the framework I use there, the exit voice framework, looks at this problem as one that's created by exit of, of, of a, women who, who might have preferred to both have children and have a career, opting out or choosing the lesser of, 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 of the two or the, the more valued of the two courses rather than persevering and trying to combine those two things. And that this exit, once these choices were made, um, took a lot of uh, potential advocates of social change in Japan out of the political process. It, it, didn't, it uh, deprived the women's movement of a lot of energy that might have been there if a lot more women were stuck with having children and try, needing to work and, and through their being stuck were forced into to getting involved in the political process, 
getting involved with their husbands and uh, trying to change Japanese society. So the story in the book was about exit of, of women from the story. And I, some people, you know, especially Pat Bowling, mm. um, when I gave my talk at, in San Diego, take issue with the kind of, uh, I don't know if it's a critical tone or a kind of neglect of the role of, of the women's movement in some of the changes that I describe. Um, I describe it as kind of an exit here. Today, they'll take a little bit more prominent story. So maybe I've taken up some of her, her criticism. But I still think that uh, what's Family policy change in Japan has not been driven by a vibrant women's movement seizing control of power and changing the social system uh, because of their energy. No, it's been driven by this concern about declining fertility, uh, the economic problems created by the decision of lots of individuals not to, not to have children. And when you have a problem that's created by exit and you don't have the people who are personally affected and who are exiting uh, voicing their concerns, uh, it gets left to the bureaucrats to some degree to try to figure out, diagnose the problem, what's going wrong, uh, what do we need to do. Um, it also falls to experts or social scientists in this case who um, try to understand the problem, figure out how big a problem it is, what's causing it, what solutions might work. Um, much as the metaphor that I'm using here suggests um, people who study disease uh, might try to understand the causes and treatments of that disease. So how does this work when social scientists try to get involved in solving a massive and complicated uh, social problem like this one? And what I, what I describe here is that the, the policy process has gotten warped. It, it has not led to a clear solution to the problem. Uh, the particular solutions that have been pursued um, I think are, are very worthy changes that Japan has adopted. The, the expansion of child care services, the parental leave becoming more generous over time, even the child allowances being made more generous under the Democratic Party of Japan. Um, these were all good things for Japanese society, but they were, they were sold to the Japanese people as a cure to declining fertility. And a lot of people who might otherwise still be looking for the cause and still be thinking about the problem have been misled, I will propose today, into thinking that they, the policy changes that have been put in effect are sufficient to, have, to solve this problem. And if, if it's been oversold based on um, not particularly thorough social science, then we should be concerned and should be looking for new, new, new looking anew at the problem and trying to identify other causes that might need treatment in, in some way. So um, I'll, I'll, start, I'll, I'll start by reviewing some of the story that's told in the book for those of you who, who have not read it. And um, I'll try to get quickly into the rel relatively newer material. Um, the first decade, well, Here's the, the fertility rate to start us, start us towards thinking about this problem. Um, you can see how long it's been going on. So I mentioned the dates earlier. Um, but this is the basic uh, set of numbers that quite a few people in Japan now are, are familiar with. If you ask the average Japanese person in the street, what's the fertility rate? They could probably name it to the decimal point that's shown up there. Um, every year when this new fertility rate is announced, it comes out as a headline on the front page of the paper, um, especially when it was setting record lows, numbers like 1.26. You know, everybody knew 1.26. And the, the, 
the starting point of that discussion happened in 1990 when the figure for 1989 was announced. It was known as the 1.57 shock. Um, again, the, the numbers are, are an important part of, of the Japanese people realizing they, they might have a problem. But, you know, um, the first decade of Japan looking at low fertility rates was spent arguing over whether this was genuinely a problem or not. And some of the first people who got involved in this conversation um, were Japanese women's movement leaders like um, Ueno Chizuko, um, who insisted that no, it's not a problem, that this is actually progress, that women in Japan are now uh, free to decide not to get married, and if they don't want to, they don't have to have children. This is a new kind of freedom that we should value rather than calling this a problem. Um, the Demographers, though, they were looking at the data much more uh, closely, and they were very aware, very aware of the um, continuously falling number, the black line there. But during the course of the 1990s, they, they looked at the demographic data that they had available, and at various points in time, they keep, kept predicting that there would be a rebound. So in 1992, uh, they predicted that the fertility that was falling up to that point would soon reverse course and, and come up to, 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 to the level of 1.8. In 1997, they predicted that it would rebound and come up to 1.6. Now, the, these numbers of 1.8 and 1.6 are, are important because fertility being low only tends to cause challenges for society when it goes low and stays low for a really long period of time. If you have a temporary dip and it comes right back up, then the, you don't tend to have rapid aging. The, the, the big challenges to the social security systems a pay-as-you-go social security systems that you have when it drops very low and stays low for a long time. So as long as the demographers were telling us that there was going to be a rebound, um, there were excuses not to take too much of an effort to deal with this problem. Um, now, they had good reasons for expecting this rebound to take place. Um, for anybody who's in demography in the room, you know all about tempo effects and total fertility rates and how they're, how they're calculated. But the total fertility rate statistic, which is the one that's cited um, all the time in these conversations, is a snapshot of a single year. And what they look at is the number of babies that are born to each age cohort in that year, how many babies were born to women who were 21, how many were born to women who were 22. You add up all these numbers um, that ha happened in, let's say, 1989, and you get the number of 1.57. And that suggests what, um, what Japan's fertility rate might look like for a whole cohort if those women uh, started behaving exactly as the women had in 1989. So it's something of an artificial construct, and one of the effects of calculating fertility that way is if, if women are postponing having um, babies so that they used to have them frequently in their early 20s, but now they're having them more often in their early 30s, during that 10-year period when those women are postponing the ages at which they're having babies, the total fertility rate goes down. And then when they have those postponed babies um, in their 30s, the, the rate goes back up. So Japanese demographers um, knew about this pattern. It happened in many other countries. And so they forecast the rebounds that you see there. And they contributed to a, a slow response to the problem by, by projecting that. Let's see. 
Um, they were also being told, they were also relying on survey data. Um, before they came up with these projections, they asked a younger unmarried women, um, are you going to get married? And how many babies do you want to have? And the vast majority of Japanese women in the 90s were still telling the surveyors, um, yes, of course I'm going to get married. And um, of course, I plan to have at least two children. So based on these survey results, it also fit with these uh, rebounding projections. So it's not that the demographers were, were, were stupid. Um, they were looking at the available data in a very scientific way, and um, this is what they forecasted. So the real realization, um, the real realization that Japan has a serious fertility problem doesn't come until 2002. So that's the date that I would date the Japanese elite deciding that, oh my goodness, we, this is not something we can just you know, um, throw a few policies at and, 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 and satisfy some public anxiety. Uh, this is a serious problem that we need to solve because if the fertility rate is this low, um, we're going to have trouble sustaining our social insurance systems um, during this rapid period of aging. So uh, what happened in 2002? Why did they suddenly um, realize this is a serious problem? So the actual decline in fertility between the last projection you saw with the rebound and the new projection um, in 2002 was not that great. The fertility rate had fallen from 1.39 to 1.32. Um, but when you looked beneath the data, when the, the demographers that work for the National Institute of Population and Social Security Research, NIPSER, um, when they looked beneath the data, um, what they found was that this next cohort of women were not behaving the way they told the surveyors they were going to be behaving. They were uh, remaining single at much higher rates, and they were deciding to settle for, I, I, I should put all these kinds of words in quotations, um, settle for one, for one child. So um, what I've shown here is the, the actual numbers the demographers were looking at in 2002. And I don't know if you, can, well, you can't see from the back of the room, but the, um, the, the dramatic ones that concerned them were, were starting with this one, 13.8. Okay. So you can see that there had been a steady kind of slow increase in the number of people uh, remaining single into their late 30s. And of course, the late 30s matter because if you don't get married by the time you're in your late 30s, you're very unlikely to have um, two children. You might have one. Um, so effectively, the numbers at this end are, are the ones who probably are not going to have any or at most one child. And the last time, it had gone up to 10, and this was already a concern for these demographers. But they thought that the um, rate of delayed marriage would slow and would only go up to 12.5 um, in the next group. That this group here, 19.7, would, would you know, head down somewhere like here to 12.5. But instead, when they looked at the numbers in 2002, they saw that it was 13.8% <coughs> who had remained single into their late 30s. Here you see another big jump. Um, they had expected the number to be 25.5 from 48 to 25.5, but instead um, they had remained single at 26.6. And even the youngest generation was remaining single at you know, another leap from 48 to 54. So in every one of these age groups, the delay in marriage was continuing, and it was pushing uh, remaining single, never marrying, um, to, to the age where the ability of these women to 
to form families and have children was um, going to be diminished. So when they plugged these new numbers into their demographic models, what they found, what they projected is that the next couple of cohorts, uh, you were going to start to see um, cohorts in which 20 to 30 percent of the women would not have any children at all, um, and in which there'd be significant numbers, maybe um, 15 to 20 percent of women who would have only one child. And when you add all those things up, it leads to a fertility projection in the long term of 1.39. Oh, I, I, I'll, I'll get to the projection in just a second. This was another piece of, of data that concerned the demographers at that time. Um, you can see a remarkable level of stability in, in the behavior of women who had been married 10 to 14 years. So this is a survey the government does of married women, and they, they take a, a, a snapshot of, of how many children women have had after they've been married 10 to 14 years. Usually, um, this is the period by which um, most of these women uh, will have had the full number of children they're going to have um, that many years into marriage. So it provides a pretty accurate behavior, a, a picture of what, what the, um, this cohort's number of children is going to be. The desired number of children for these cohorts, you can see remarkable stability, 2.18 here, 2.18 here. The, um, it seems that married women who had been married that long uh, still desired up to 1997 to have the two children, right? Um, the number who wanted one child, remarkably stable, 11, 10, 10, 12, uh, remarkably stable as well. So what they found in 2002 is suddenly this number had jumped. The number who, were, who aspired to have only one child, I'm sorry, the, the ones, number who had only one child after being married 10 to 14 years, so this is actual behavior, had jumped from 12 to 16 percent. So that's a remarkable shift in a very stable kind of behavior. And when you asked them how many they wanted, it had gone down from 2.18 to 2.1. So that meant that more and more women were actually aspiring to have one for the average to end up being a 2.1. So when they plugged those numbers in, they got a new projection that it was the fertility rate would stabilize at 1.39, just below 1.4. And at, this is a, a, a level at which, um, you know, some of the, there are very few other countries that have seen long-term uh, fertility rates stay uh, this far below the replacement level. Um, you know, Germany, Italy, Spain are, are some other countries that have, have, have a similar uh, story to tell. Um, but Japan is one of the countries that is projecting a really long period of this extremely low fertility rate, which led Nipser, that's, which is responsible for issuing population forecasts and, and forcing the government to deal with um, uh, pension reforms every time they issue a new uh, population projection, to predict a, a very rapid rate of aging. They now expected in 2002 that the proportion of over 65s would go up to 35% from 19% in 2002. Uh, Japan was already the oldest society in the world in 2002, and it was going to be in uncharted territory um, based on these projections. Many of you know that since then, the projections have gone even higher. Um, it, when you look at the, compare the more recent fertility, uh, fertility projections and also uh, population projections, you find that the 2002 really got it, got it right. They called the bottom of the 
fertility rate. And um, they did predict a little bit of a bounce, and Japan has seen um, a little bit of a bounce since the mid-2000s. Mid um, so that the recent population projections have basically uh, remained largely constant with this one, despite the repeated um, errors that you can see in the earlier projections. Um, this time they've called it um, correctly. So in terms of the social scientists dealing with this problem, you can say that the demographers um, diagnosed that there was a problem and confirmed we've got some serious thing here that we've got to deal with by 2002. They took maybe 10 or 12 years to get from the early shock to confirming that they have a problem. And that was an initial delay that, that, that we can think about. But what's, um, what I, when, when I look back at this period now, um, what I can see is how quickly, um, once everybody decided there was a problem, we've got to do something, that you found um, um, feminists, social scientists, government officials, all singing from the same uh, songbook about what this problem was, what, what, what the causes were of this problem, and what Japan ought to do to solve it. And the, the predominant framework, let me see, I think, yes. Um, the predominant framework in which uh, everyone started talking about the fertility problem was the frame of economic opportunity costs. Now, for me to tell you this, if you're paying attention at all to this area, um, this probably does not seem like news because this is so everywhere. It's not just in Japan. It's in the OECD. It's in, in all kinds of scholarly communities. Um, but you can look at this um, particular way of framing fertility issues uh, and date it back at least to Gary Becker in his 1960 um, article on the on the um, economic analysis of fertility. Um, he was among the first people who noted that in the advanced industrialized countries, the improved opportunities for women to earn income through work outside the home and the growing cost of educating children to compete in a high human capital world puts downward pressure on fertility rates in developed nations. Uh, we were just talking um, over tea um, after lunch today about the very high cost of educating your children in, in Oxford um, if, they, if you want them to go to the best schools. Um, of course, that's just a part of the, part of the story of, of the, a very real um, kind of calculation that has fed a declining fertility rates in many places. Um, so this is definitely part of the story, but it's interesting how it became the only story. Some, the, the, uh, very quickly, you get from analyzing fertility behavior this way to the idea that the main thing the government needs to do is try to shift the opportunity costs a little bit so that uh, working women can, can afford, can see motherhood as something they can afford to do. And then you can somehow get more women to have, have children. So this framing was used by a wide variety of people in the paper. I cite two people, Osawa Machiko, who's a labor economist who works in Tokyo um, at Japan Women's University. Um, she wrote a, a shinsho, a, a widely read uh, small kind of books that you see people reading on the on the um, trains that was called Atarashi Kazoku no Tame no Keizai Gaku, Economics for a New Style Family, that took Becker's framework and applied it to Japan and said, this is, this is what's wrong. Uh, we have a labor market structure that doesn't work for, for mothers, and we need to change it to reduce the opportunity costs for, for, for professional, well-educated women to become mothers in order to encourage them 
to, to both work and have children. Another influential uh, scholar was Yashiro Naohiro, who wrote a book, Shoshi uh, Koreka no Gaku, Economics for a Declining Fertility Aging Society. Uh, both these books came out in 1999, um, a, a point to which I date the kind of Japanese government's embrace of the um, economic opportunity cost framework for thinking about their fertility problem. The, uh, the bureaucrats at Ministry of Health, Labor, and Welfare, especially uh, Mukuno Michiko, um, quickly start uh, writing reports and framing uh, the issue in terms of opportunity costs for, for working mothers and, and focus the energy of the government's response to this news that, yes, we have a serious problem, into um, upgrading even further the benefits available to um, the social benefits that are provided to working mothers. So there, in, in my, in my um, 2005 book, I devote a little bit of attention to the challenge that the economic opportunity cost framework received from Yamada, um, Yamada Masahiro, who wrote um, the books on parasite singles in Japan and really popularized that way of thinking about the causes of declining fertility. Uh, briefly, that's the idea that the reason uh, young people are not marrying and, and having children is because they're so comfortable living at home with their parents. They have such comfortable lives um, with their well-educated, um, relatively well-off parents in their larger homes in Tokyo that they find it uh, financially more comfortable to stay at home and commute to the jobs and keep all their income for going off to ski and things like that than um, to go get married, acquire your own apartment, and start to build your own life. So, you know, as the term parasite single suggests, this was a very pejorative uh, view of young people's uh, decision making and kind of briefly took the steam out of the economic opportunity cost uh, advocates by saying, you know, that it's suggesting you can't do much to make these young people, you know, shifting their costs a little bit is probably not going to suddenly make them want to have children because they're so comfortable in their parents' bedrooms. Um, but in, in, in the book, I describe how this briefly took some of the steam out of this argument. But if you look back at it from the point of view of, of today, it's clear that that was a brief detour. The economic opportunities arg costs argument came roaring back as a way of, of um, framing the way Japan ought to deal with its declining fertility problem. If you think about all the ways in which the government has <laughs> implemented um, um, family policy changes in response to declining fertility, you can see that all of them are trying to address this idea that we need to make it a little bit more attractive for working women to have babies. Um, let's see. The, before I get, this is the babies and bosses menu. So let me see. Did I get these out of order? Yeah, no. Sorry. How can I go backwards? There you go, thank you. So I'll get to the babies and bosses in the OECD in a minute, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the way, the outcome of the Japanese government framing the policy in these terms. Um, one of the, 
one of the ideas behind making parental leave more generous in Japan was the idea that if we can keep women attached to the labor force after they have children by giving them a parental leave that guarantees them their job and gives them enough income to, to hold on to their careers, you're going to fundamentally change the economic opportunity costs paid by, by working women instead of being forced out the way many of them were um, in the earlier generation, the argument was that if you can, uh, in the earlier generation, of course, this is um, ancient history now, but there was a time where before there was parental leave, you had just eight weeks of maternity leave, and at the end of that eight weeks, if a working woman was not willing to go back into the full-time workforce and work like a full-time worker, they were going to uh, lose their job and be off the career track forever. Um, so eight weeks and you gotta be back. That, obviously was a difficult thing for a lot of working mothers to handle. And the hope was you create a parental leave system, um, more women would, would, would stick it out in their careers. And over time, the Japanese government has made this more generous. It started out unpaid. They increased it to 20, they, they initiated a, a reimbursement at the level of 25% in the mid 90s. Then they uh, increased it to 40% in, um, 2000, 1999, and in 2010 they raised it to 50%. So they're still not at the Scandinavian levels, those of you who are familiar with, with the way parental leave works there, but they've now even added uh, two daddy months so that there's now 14 weeks of eligibility for parental leave in Japan and two use it or lose it months that the second spouse uh, needs to take. And it's uh, it's one of the more most innovative uh, family policy um, approaches that was pioneered in Sweden and has been um, adopted in Germany and in several other countries. As countries deal with declining fertility, everybody seems to think that if we can do daddy months, it's going to change things. Um, so Japan is trying that, starting 2010. Um, child care centers. So this was one of the first areas of, of uh, policy change in the 1990s. There were more spaces for young children in child care centers that had previously specialized in children over three. Now they, they created more spaces for younger children as young as one year old. And they have expanded hours. It used to be you need to pick up your kid at 5 p.m. all over the country. And now you can find more uh, child care centers staying open to six or later. So these are, um, again, making it easier for a, a woman to stay in a full-time job, although anybody who knows about full-time jobs in Japan knows that very few of them end at even 6 p.m., right? So even now, they, they may not have quite caught up with the working uh, culture, but they have expanded these hours. Child allowances is another area in which they're trying to improve the opportunity costs. Um, we know that you'll have to give up some income during this time when, when you um, have young children at home. So the government says we'll give you a, a supplement, an income supplement that uh, under the DPJ's plan was going to equal um, $274. So that's, um, what, 180 pounds or something like that? 180 pounds a month. Um, for the first 13 years of your child's life. It's a pretty substantial sum when you add it up. It's tens of thousands of dollars that the Japanese government decided to invest, put behind this economic opportunity costs argument. <coughs> if we could just, uh, the, the government considered putting behind the, this uh, argument because, of course, after the earthquake, uh, even the DPJ uh, scaled back the family allowances and didn't get to the level of generosity that I just described. 
Finally, the latest innovations have been flex time and reduced hours for parents of young children. Um, so another way of, of closing the gaps. And what, what Japan has basically done now, I would propose, maybe some people want to disagree with me, is they have adopted the best practices of work-life balance as diagnosed and, and prescribed by the OECD uh, project known as Babies and Bosses. So that's what this slide is about. If you've seen the, the covers of these, are quite provocative. Um, this is a, um, an, an, another example of policy entrepreneurship by social scientists and uh, policy makers that are all part of a network, an international network that have bought into this idea that the, the key to turning around fertility rates is to improve the economic opportunity costs. Um, in, in the paper, I cite uh, Rian Mahan, I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce her name, um, who has written about the OECD's project on babies and bosses and described how this started out. The OECD labor directorate was trying to figure out what to do about poverty among single mothers, um, what can we do about rapid aging of, of European societies where they're going to have labor shortages, and the answer, they already had an answer, which was we need to bring more women into the workforce. And once they had that answer, that we need to bring more women and mothers into the workforce, um, they've realized that selling this as a solution to the fertility problems was really going to cause it to take off. If you, you know, Germany is one of the countries that resisted this kind of thing for a, a long time. And if you look at kind of the timing and the way in which they end up adopting this policy, um, it's not to help uh, single mothers uh, in poverty. Um, it was adopted because they thought it was going to solve their fertility problem. Um, it gets to the point in 2007 where the OECD uh, social scientists and policymakers who are congregated in the Directorate of Employment, Labor, and Social Affairs, uh, DELSA, um, publish a, a report in which they um, come pretty close to saying that if you adopt our best practices, family policy, work-life policy best practices, you will um, solve your fertility problem. This is what they write. Systems which provide a continuum of support to ch families, support for parents at home when the child is very young, leading, to, leading on to a child care place, preschool, school and out of school hour care activities, perform best in helping parents reconcile work and family life. Such an approach stimulates birth rates as parents can realistically plan their work and family commitments. Okay, so they, that's a, a pretty clear causal statement. I, I don't know, they might be um, embarrassed by framing it or phrasing it quite that way um, because they seem to have promised a lot of countries that if they adopt what Japan has done, they will have solved their fertility problem. So the, the next section of my paper is called Strong Logic but Little Support from the Data. Okay. So the economic opportunity cost logic is very appealing. I think many of you are looking at me and wondering, what's, what do you say? What's, what's wrong with this? Um, this? This is the way we do social science. Individual social choice based on economic logic. And it's certainly an important part of what shapes um, human behavior. It's seductively very convincing. It's also consistent with the problem Japan was experiencing. Women were leaving the workforce after having children, and the fertility rate had fallen as women's opportunities to pursue careers improved. So there's some, some um, circumstantial evidence that the 
kinds of dynamics that the people advocating the economic opportunity cost framework were talking about were part of the story in Japan. Um, but we need to remember that logic is not evidence. It is striking how far the argument that work-life balance best practices would boost fertility rates um, advanced without evidence that these policies were adopted had actually had that result. So now we're going to start to look at whether there is any evidence that when you adopt the best practices we've been talking about, that the fertility rate improves. The babies and bosses studies itself does not provide that kind of evidence. Um, this was a set of, of, of four reports published over a couple of years. Um, most of it is composed of country studies where they're describing family policies in each country. It's a qualitative um, country studies uh, approach to what the different countries are doing. They don't do in this project a rigorous analysis of correlates of high and low fertility across the sample countries. The closest they come is this slide that you're not going to be able to read, but that's okay because I'm trying to tell you how, how, how little it tells us. Okay? So the closest that the Babies and Bosses project came to trying to, to, to prove that uh, best practices in work-life balance would solve the fertility problem was a chart that showed all the fertility rates of the OECD countries over here in this column, and then it has the employment ratio by for women in 2006 in this column, part-time women, uh, mothers of young children. So a lot of statistics showing the working behavior of women and putting them right next to the uh, fertility rates and seeming to suggest that maybe they've proven something. So the, um, of course, most people have trouble making sense of that many numbers. So the OECD, um, when they presented this data in, in public settings, um, when William, um, Willem Adema, the chief organizer of the Babies and Bosses Project, um, took this show on the road um, based on the Babies and Bosses Project. He did a PDF, um, he did a PowerPoint presentation that is still available on the website. So I was able to see how he presented this um, in 2007. And um, this is a slide that he shared. And some of you who follow this issue will recognize versions of the slide from other places. Um, what all these cross-sectional analyses show is that if you put the employment rate of women down here and the fertility rate over here, that there is a positive correlation. The more women are working, the higher your fertility rate. That's what this line is supposed to be um, telling us. And this versions of this chart have shown up everywhere. Um, you might look at the phrasing that he uses here. It's a little bit uh, disingenuous. Countries with high female employment rates now have the highest fertility rates. So he doesn't qu come quite as close as the earlier quoted passage to saying, if you increase your fertility, your women working rate, you will increase your fertility rate. But that phrasing certainly strongly hints that, that that's the lesson he wants you to draw. Um, this is the way the, the project was kind of laid out to sell countries on, on adopting these family policy best practices. You can solve your fertility rate if you adopt these things. And it, it wasn't just the OECD. Um, in the paper, I, I have citations to a couple of different um, Japanese uh, publications, including uh, uh, the 
Yashiro's book that I mentioned earlier and a, a gender equality white paper from 2000 that featured virtually identical um, co a correlation charts of this kind. If you start to look at what is the data out there that supports the argument that work-life family balance is going to solve your fertility problem, you find that this is just about all there is. Um, so what does this chart really tell us? Um, first of all, the correlation is not very positive. That slope of that line is not very positive. Um, y equals uh, 0.013x in this chart. And what that means is that if you um, increase the share of women working by 10 percentage points, so if you were to go from 55% of women working to 65% of women working, which is a huge, that's like the whole gap between most of the OECD. Um, if you were to increase it by 10 percentage point, you would increase your number of children by uh, from 1.26 to 1.39. Okay, so Japan, which at 2005 was at 1.26, might get to something like 1.39 uh, based on that slope. Um, the R squared is 0 0.18, which is not a very good fit, as you can see from the way the points are distributed on that chart. Second, correlation is not causation. Um, just because you show this relationship doesn't mean that the bottom thing is causing the, the thing on the side. Um, there could be a lot of other things going on. Finally, given the limits of what a cross-national correlation of very different nations at a single point in time can tell us, the natural complement of the snapshot ought to be a close look at what the longitudinal data tells us about the correlation between these variables. So what any good social scientist ought to do um, is after looking at a, a snapshot like that of a single year and the relationship across lots of very different countries would be to look at some specific countries and see what happens over time in those countries. Um, it's interesting that Willem Adema himself did exactly this when he first published this chart in, in 2001 in an OECD publication. So the first time he did this, he did the very thing that I described, and he noted that for most countries, the relationship over time was actually the reverse. The more women worked, the, 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 the further the fertility rate fell. Okay? Um, but by the time this came out in 2007, he realized, I'm, hopefully none of his friends are in the room, that, um, that it was easier to sell the, the best practices of family policy if he kind of dropped those uh, qualifications and showed just this chart. So, but let's do this exercise and see what, ha would, what things would look like if he had shown the chart for Japan in 2005 when that earlier one was shown. So, this is the longitudinal relationship between the employment rate for women, the same exact thing I showed you earlier, and the total fertility rate. So same two variables. But instead of looking at a snapshot of lots of countries in 2005, we look at Japan over time. So used to be they had a very nice high fertility rate around two in 1975. Um, steadily the fertility rate steadily declines as the employment rate goes up um, all the way to 2005. So if you look back at all the reports coming up dissecting what's going on with the fertility rate, why is Japan's fertility rate so low, you do not ever see this chart. This is the chart they've been hiding from you because it's politically incorrect, you know, and doesn't help advance the argument um, necessarily. It seems to suggest that the main way we can solve the fertility problem is to turn back the clock 
um, and have a lot less women working, and then maybe we'd get back to fertility rates. I don't, nobody wanted to, to suggest that, I think. The Japanese government was not just um, being, they're, they're not just trying to mislead the public. I think they were afraid that something like this might cause other kinds of confusion and cause LDP politicians to think that the best way to solve the fertility problem was to turn back the clock. So don't show them this. Um, show them the correlation chart that suggests this possibility that if you adopt these best practices, you will solve your fertility problem. Um, so the next, the next chart, um, the section of my paper is called Triumph of Hope Over Experience. Um, so Japan had not only data, but also experience to go on by the 2000s. So they, had, they had been adopting elements of this best practice steadily since the 1990s. They had uh, parental leave in the 1990s. They improved childcare services in the 1990s. They made parental leave more generous in the early 2000s. They tried to get rid of waiting lists for childcare centers under Koizumi in 2003. Um, there's a steady implementation of these policies, and they were uh, not solving their fertility problem. So you would have thought that there would be some basis for questioning this, but instead, the argument you got from the experts, the social scientists, is you just haven't gone far enough. Okay? You've reduced the opportunity costs a little bit, but they're still massive, and I, I agree, they are still massive. Um, but I'm not sure you can ever lower them through marginal changes of the kind that the Japanese government has been tinkering with. Um, making the uh, parental leave 60% instead of 50%, is this gonna suddenly change things? 70%? Um, I, I, I continue to doubt that these kinds of changes that the Japanese government has been talking about in family policy best practices are actually gonna solve their fertility problem. So the the last section of the paper is called The Cost of Relying on Logic and Hope Over Evidence. Um, and I want to start by making sure everybody now that I've you know, criticized the family policy best practices, seemingly criticized them, I want to remind you that I did say earlier that I thought all these things were good for Japan to adopt. These were things Japan needed to do. Um, they're important um, improvements in the, in the Japanese system. Um, but my concern is that they've been oversold as a solution to the fertility problem. If, if all you wanted was to improve the um, opportunity cost for women, the Japanese government has done that to some degree. And this is where I'm going to give Pat Bowling and the women's movement in Japan some credit, uh, because I think that part of the reason everything got framed as economic opportunity costs and some of these charts ended up being popularized is because the Japanese feminists were realized around 2000 that actually we can achieve our policy goals. Not lowering fertility, that's not their goal. Um, their policy goals were to improve the opportunity costs for working women and al allow more um, women to combine having work and having a family. That was among their goals. And they achieved that by framing the fertility problem in the way they did. And they arguably deserve some credit for that. But if the fertility problem is, is serious and the country's got major economic uh, adjustments ahead if they don't solve it, then overselling a cure that doesn't work is, is malpractice. 
right? You, you, you've misled the Japanese people into thinking they've solved the problem and they haven't. Now, the, the recent fertility trend um, doesn't help because it's gone up, right? It's gone up from 1.26 to 1.41. So the fertility rate has now uh, risen. And it seemed to rise after Japan did some of these things. And you know, I, I uh, suspect that this has caused further um, relaxation, that we've done a lot of the things we needed to do to solve the fertility problem. When, if you look at the demographic data, I think the recent bounce is mostly um, caused by the, the ending of the fertility delay period. Because um, the demographers have always expected a bounce, right? And it was going to happen when the cohorts stopped further delaying having their babies. So I was not able to come up with data on, on a birth by cohort, number of births by cohort. So I'm using marriage here. So this is an update on the, the share of women never married. You can see earlier, the number that I highlighted was this orange line that came, I think, to 26 point something percent. Remember, that was the 2002 a crisis mark. And that was the time in which the government uh, projected that we're soon going to see cohorts that stay single to 20 to 30 percent. Okay, <clears throat> We're there. They were right. Um, it's above 20 percent. But if you look at the latest cohorts, you can see that finally um, the delay has stopped in the late 20s. And it's slowing down at this group so that we can project, um, if I can project. I, I haven't looked at the detailed demographic data behind all this, but if you um, look at these sorts of numbers, you can see why the, the government thinks that the tempo effect is reducing now, and it is driving, at least in part, the recovery in fertility rates over the last couple of years. Um, let's see. So the final thing I look at in the paper um, is, don't look at this one yet, sorry, I shouldn't have changed. The, um, there is one, a, a couple of very um, rigorously carried out um, analyses of the effects of policy change, family policy change on fertility rates. People that look at fertility rates as a dependent variable and look at a whole bunch of causes of fertility controlling for things that we know, like the tempo effect and how it affects things, level of economic development, um, national fixed effects, and um, looks at countries that improve child allowances, how much does the fertility rate actually go up? Countries that expand child care services, how much do they actually go up? And so if you're interested in getting, looking at some, some, some good work on this topic, check out the 2013 working paper by Angela Lucci and um, Olivier Thevenon, uh, who look at all the OECD countries between 1982 and 2007. And they look at all these policy changes and see what happens to the fertility rates controlling for these other factors. And what their data showed is that you could expand the child care services by 15 percentage points go from 15% of the kids in, in childcare to 30% of the kids in childcare. That's a massive change in childcare. And you would increase the fertility rate, according to this data, by 0.1 child. 0.1 child. That doesn't get you very far. Parental leave payments, making parental leave more generous, going from 40 to 50 to 60. 
um, has no effect on fertility rates when you look at all these countries. Spending on children helps. The one thing that actually does the most is what the DPJ wanted to do. Um, make more generous long-term child allowance payments so that people will believe, unless there's an earthquake, that they will get to uh, have 13 years of very generous child supports. When you do that, you increase the number of children by 0.36 more children. Okay? So all these things combined um, don't move the fertility rate much at all. So if Japan's experience follows what all these other nations have had, they have not solved the fertility problem with the things they've done. Further tinkering of family policy is not going to solve it. Um, they ought to be thinking outside the box. And I'm running out of time, so I won't be able to go into too much detail on these two charts. I'll just show you um, some evidence that Japan is dealing with some extraordinary uh, problems compared to other countries. You hear a lot that Japan's not the only low fertility country. Germany, Spain, Italy, there are lots of others. Um, actually, some of these others have had a decent bounce back in their fertility rates. And this is from the journal Nature, very well-regarded scientific study of demography. And um, what these authors, um, the lead author was Mirskyla, um, Mirskyla Mir Kohler and Bilari, 2009 Nature article, looked at the data from 2005 and found out that as you become more developed, you actually see a bounce up in your fertility rate across all these countries. And the idea is, their idea, is that as you become more developed and educated, you start, your society starts to change, you become more individual oriented, the very old fashioned ways of thinking about the family um, change, and in the new individual era, when new kinds of, of forming families are more accepted, um, you start to have more children. So when, the state, when they looked at this, they found that the key turning point, you can't make sense of this at all, so I'll just give you the general contours is that when you get to the point of being uh, at the point 0.9 level of human development, um, fertility rates are usually at their lowest. And if you proceed with further development be beyond point 0.9, you tend to get a bounce back. Look at all these countries. That This is longitudinal data, so they're doing what the good social scientists do. They combine the snapshot with the longitudinal data. So um, fertility rates fall for all these countries once they get to that level of development, they go up, except for the green line. So that one is Japan, okay? But Japan just went right on through the 0.9 mark, and the fertility rate kept falling down, down, down. The other country here in pink um, is Korea, okay? So Japan and Korea are the two countries that despite becoming more and more development, developed and adopting a lot of best practices in family policy, are not seeing a fertility rate turnaround. And so at the very end of the paper, I come back to an issue I know you've been talking about in your other uh, paper presentations, and so maybe I don't need to go into it, which is the idea that um, there's other correlations besides uh, rates of women working and rising fertility. I'll just show you one um, here. I can give you an, a nice, this one, I, I should have reversed the axes to make it comparable. Mm -hmm but percent over 20 cohabiting. So if you look at the OECD countries and where they are cohabiting in high rates, like France, um, where they are cohabiting in low rates, like Japan, that the fertility rate is much higher in the cohabiting countries than in the non-cohabiting countries. So this is just as strong, the correlation arguably stronger 
um, in terms of r squared. So maybe the, the issue is, is that we should be, uh, if Japan really wants to solve their fertility problem, they need to make it acceptable for uh, women to become single mothers, um, for there to be other kinds of families and, and marriages. And the, I, I, I propose that it's, it's not just the, the women. I've been talking mostly about women, and you guys are, are quickly going to ask me a question about that. But the young men are also constrained by a very narrow view of what is an acceptable, appropriate um, kind of family. If the only appropriate kind of family is a male breadwinner who's supporting his whole family with a wife and two children and owns a home, if that's your idea, a very narrow idea of what an appropriate family is, if the young men are not making enough money uh, to, to achieve that, they're not even going to cohabit. They're not even going to think about marriage. They're just going to adapt. And um, you're not going to see the bounce back in fertility that apparently uh, many other countries achieve when they become more liberal. Thanks. Thank you.